Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I've long admired the work of Deshaun Harrison. Like many of those I've come to encounter and adore over the past few years, Deshaun's work came across my timeline on social media, and their incisive and invigorating intellectual offerings have had me hooked since. Deshaun is a black, fat, queer, and trans theorist and abolitionist, and in their debut book, Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness, they argue that to live in a body that is both fat and black is to exist at the margins of a society that limits us in ways we may never have even considered. In our conversation today, Deshaun expands on the connection between anti-fatness and anti-blackness, explains how diet culture persists as a tool of social control, and offers us ways of thinking about how the policing each of us might do of our own bodies invariably impacts how we interact with and even judge those around us. Like all of the best intellectual work, Deshaun's intervention is grounded in a political awakening that took place at the community level, where they say they felt safe and brave enough to explore who they wanted to be in the world. And so we also discuss how community building has shown them what the future, or a beyond as they call it, could look like, and they make a compelling case for the power of our imaginations to help us think beyond what we know. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Deshaun Harrison. Sean, thank you so much for joining me on Busy Being Black. Uh, you know, we've had this conversation on Instagram, and I don't mind listeners knowing that I've been so nervous to have this conversation with you. So I'm, I'm glad that we're finally here together and able to converse. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I don't know why you're so nervous, but it's going to be a great <laughs> conversation. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> um, how's your heart? You know, my heart is present. Um, she's also a bit overworked, <laughs> um, but, you know, grateful nonetheless. I think that's, that's the perfect way to sort of, um, explain the space that I'm in, um, and where my heart is carrying me in this moment. I think that, um, you know, the past few months for me have been very 
odd and weird and difficult. And so now, now we're in this like season of transition. So my heart is, you know, holding that with the care that it requires and also um, holding whatever the next step looks like with a lot of excitement and a little bit of jitteriness too. So mm. all of that. I'm an Aries, so this is my season. So I totally appreciate the newness, the nervousness, the kind of energy of a new beginning. I've been mm-hmm. feeling that myself, right? This kind of, um, and I have to kind of t- try and t- as I get older, is, is learning how to temper this kind of like Aries fire that always <laughs> wants me to burn everything to the ground and start again. And as I try to make these kind of more elegant transitions in my life, um, this season in particular has been very interesting for me as I think about Mm. new ways to carry myself in the world and new ways to pursue what it is I want, knowing what I know or what I'm learning about the world. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's, it's important. Right. And I think that like that level of growth and change and ability to shift is part of the beauty of life. So I want to say thank you um, for Belly of the Beast in particular, but also to acknowledge the tremendous work that you've been doing, because I encountered your work before you had published Belly of the Beast, and I was very lucky lucky to receive a copy of it. Um, And I remember encountering your work for the first time and just thinking like, wow, you know, like there is a certain brand of truth that that you offer us that I think is actually quite rare in the ecosystem of public intellectuals. And I don't, you've never called yourself a public intellectual to my mind, <laughs> but I, I kind of put you up there. Um, and, and so I just want to say thank you for that because I, I found reading Belly of the Beast to be a really challenging experience. Oh, I love that you use the word challenging. Um, that's precisely the type of experience I hope people have with the book. Um, so thank you. And yeah, no, I don't really refer to myself as a public intellectual, but a lot of people do. So it's something that I've come to terms with in some ways. Um, but I'm grateful for um, just, you know, you and and folks like you who have in, embraced my work long before I published this book and who, you know, have decided to take this work seriously that to me means more than anything else whether I published or not um and so yeah thank you I think that you're as you've written in the book and actually elsewhere that you're coming into yourself um has been I guess relatively recent right 2017 I think is if I remember correctly is when you kind of started thinking about writing but also documenting your experience, um, understanding your gender identity in a more fluid and um, expansive way. Was there a catalyst for that, that kind of sparked something within you that thought now is the moment when I can start kind of maybe more um, directly addressing how I'm feeling inside? Yeah, sort of, yeah. So, I moved to Atlanta in 2014 um, to go to school at Morehouse. And um, prior to then, I'd never been really politically involved. I'd not, you know, really, there was nothing about me that screamed organizer or that was like, that screamed that I was going to be this 
openly queer trans person in the world who was wanting to write and publish and that sort of thing. Um, and then in 2014, I started organizing um, in the AUC as well as like the greater Atlanta metro area. And I got more connected with other queer and trans folks. I became friends with some of the first people I ever, I'd ever known to identify as non-binary. Um, and it was a moment for me in which I was able to really develop who I was, like really learn about, you know, who I am and find language that really fit, well, for the most part, that really fit who I, who I am and how I show up in the world. Um, and so, and then it was in 2017, around the time when I started to publish, was because I was navigating houselessness at the time. So I was homeless while in school and um, was like doing survival sex work and, you know, couch surfing and things like that. Um, and so I published, I started to publish because I wanted extra money. I needed extra money um, in my pocket. And my English professor, um, Dr. Natasha Walker, who I love, um, she encouraged me years before that to write more. She was always someone who was very fond of my writing. And, I, you know, I enjoyed writing. I've done it since I was a, a child, but I never imagined that I could have a career in it. Um, but then I was like, you know, I need extra cash. So I started to publish and here I am. Um, so that was sort yeah. of the jumping point for me. And that the world responded to this expression of yourself, right? Mm. Yeah. And I think, so when I first started to write, it was mostly like really specific to Atlanta politics and our organizing community. And I think that was what made it so special um, because even as I was discovering fat politics and, and you know, developing my own politic, I wasn't writing about fat politics or fatness in general at all at that point in time. I was writing about the people that I was in community with and the politics that we shared and the, the organizing that we were doing in the city and the, the sort of structure for why we needed to organize. Well, what was special about that moment, right? Like that you wanted to document or indeed that kind of like impacted you, right? As being part of that organizing community, was there an, was there an energy or an animus or something that, what, what was it? How would you describe it? I think it was just, you know, that's a great question. And I think it was just that it felt special. Um, it felt honest and, and true and authentic that I was able to exist amongst community in this way where we all had a shared belief that we deserve to show up in the world differently. Um, and I think that for me, it gave, I think for the first time, I felt like a sense of, of safety and I felt at home um, in my body. I felt at home amongst the people that I was with. And I felt at home in the purpose that I felt drawn to at the time. Mm -hmm. And that for me was enough. And that made it special enough to want to write and document this, these stories, this history, especially knowing that our history is so often misquoted or left out or erased or, you know, some other form of violence that happens when the person who dominates gets to write history. Um, and so I, I just felt compelled to, to, to move in that way because I felt at home. 
And I'm, I'm thinking about kind of the the magic of that, right? Like of any of us who've kind of encountered people who've helped us feel a bit more at home in our mm -hmm. in ourselves or with other people or what have you, like the, the many different ways that we can feel at home. Um, and about the kind of, um, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm kind of foreseeing a conversation about representation, right? And this kind of very flattened and very thin and very corporate, um, you know, kind of proselytizing about how important mm -hmm. representation is, but the representation that we see kind of at that high level or more mainstream level is not the same as the rep representation that we feel at a community level. Right, absolutely. Yes, I, lo I love that, that sort of separation there because I have major critiques of representation and representationist politics. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, I think that there's still something special about being able to exist, exist amongst people that we feel at home with and that feel like they are a part of us, right? Um, and I think that that's something that is important, especially for Black, queer, and trans folks um, who are so often removed, especially in the South, who are so often removed from that possibility at all. Mm. Um, and so to be able to exist in a space like that with other folks who were so happily um, and, and openly and freely existing as themselves was, it's mesmerizing for me. And figuring Still. it out, right? <laughs> like it's the, that sense of community is, is that and, that, and that safety comes from, I think, from my own experience, being able to figure out who I am and right. how I want to express myself and people kind of like either responding to that vis-a-vis -vis your writing or even your gender identity mm -hmm. and knowing that you can kind of figure that out with, with the mirrors of the community around you. I right, love that. exactly. So I'd love to talk to you about Belly of the Beast, you know, okay. kind of with a caveat that like, you know, Belly of the Beast isn't the only topic of conversation today, but I think there's so much within it that I think can help us launch into larger conversations. Yeah. And I have some ideas about, um, you know, where this conversation can go. So okay. let's just, let's see how we get on. Okay. Um, so there was an article published um, yesterday in BBC News. Okay. And, um, you know, one of the things that Belly of the Beast has helped me realize and think about and perhaps notice a bit more is the way that quote unquote obesity is weaponized. Mm -hmm. So this article in the BBC from yesterday reports on a change in legislation, which means calories now have to be printed next to menu items at <laughs> restaurants with more than 250 employees. Hmm. And what strikes me about this coverage in particular, I, I recognize I haven't shared the article with you, but what strikes me about the coverage in this particular article was that there was almost a singular focus on the economic impact to restaurants mm -hmm. and not the like psychological psychic impact of the human beings who frequent those restaurants in the first place. Right. And so I wonder if this is like a nice segue into some of the, the meat of, of Belly of the Beast, which might be this the way that fatness is weaponized to police who we are. I mean, what we eat in a restaurant. Right. How might you begin to have that conversation for listeners who haven't yet read Belly of the Beast? There is something so 
sinister about diet culture um, that does seek entirely to control everything about who you are and what you do in every iteration of, of the word, right? Um, and I think that, like you said, I haven't read this article, but just from what you just described, um, it, it just reminds me so much of the ways that diets and diet culture, gym culture, fitness culture, all these things have all been used to not only control what, what we do, but also to create a societal standard for what people around us are supposed to, to do, right? And that is supposed to be the, the thing by which we control everyone else who we interact with. And I think that that is just such a, such a devastating, but also really interesting impact of, of diet culture um, because so many people are already doing a lot of calorie counting anyway, right? That's, that's been a very common thing for a very long time. And I think that we're entering into, I'm, I'm calling this, this current era that we're living in um, a sort of revitalized 2000s era where we're very like very into this super like gym culture, very, very hyper invested in this, this aesthetic that is built around thinness. And I think that as we enter more into this era, we're going to see a lot more of this, these things happening in public space because diet culture is, is going to be something that is more marketable in a very particular way that we haven't seen in a very long time. We haven't. And thank you for saying that, for making that reference to the 2000s, because I grew up in the 2000s, right? And I right. remember kind of that obsession, um, particularly with women's bodies, yes. um, around this kind of like hyper thinness that was at once pursued, demanded, mm -hmm. and criticized at the same time. Right. But one of the questions I have for you is, is about the kind of embeddedness of diet culture and what that says about its connection to anti-Blackness as a kind of like structural phenomenon, right? Like, does that make sense if I ask that? Go ahead. I, I know, I, I hear you have something else on your tongue, so go ahead. Well, okay, let me say it this way. So we're kind of in this current socio-political moment here in the UK, we're having this tiff with the UK government, for lack of a better word, whereby they won't include trans people in a ban on conversion therapy. Mm. And 200 odd civil society organizations in the UK have boycotted the UK's Safe to Be Me conference, which is its first kind of attempt at a global LGBT conference about LGBT rights. And for good reason, right? The way right. that our trans siblings are treated here in the UK is unacceptable. And what right does the UK have to go on a global stage and kind of bleat about or trumpet about, you know, LGBT rights? Right. But what emerges, I think, for me in this conversation is that, you know, how trans people in this particular situation vis-a-vis -vis conversion therapy are treated hasn't just emerged from nowhere, right? Like mm -hmm. society is able to continually practice a violence against trans people because it's a rehearsed violence right. against other communities. And so I wonder if the embeddedness of diet culture has something to do with an already well-rehearsed ism, right? Or a structural something. And I wonder if you might be able to help me name that. Yeah, I think that 
what you're getting at is is what's at the heart of diet culture right so something that i actually was just talking about on twitter last week maybe um is that sort of the origin of of diet culture is purity culture abstinence right this patriarchal understanding that we're supposed to abstain from the things that we enjoy um sylvester graham the creator of the graham cracker and John and Will Kellogg, you know, Kellogg cereals, um, were some of the first people to create like these diet standards. And the entire purpose for them was that they wanted to control people's sexual urges, particularly women. Um, and so what happens, of course, we, we understand Kellogg cereals now and graham crackers to be very sweet, but they initially started off as very bland. And the idea was that you know, if I create bland foods, I can control or or quell people's desires for sex, to masturbate, to have sex with each other, to be, you know, sexually immoral. And they use that as a way to, to sort of create this, this cult-like following um, where people were committed to abstinence from sex by way of the food that they were consuming. That is the origin of diet culture. And so it's like, yes, I, I, I love what you're naming here because to me, what that names is that there is no way to separate diet culture from any of the other isms, right? This and in, in, in that quick little summation right there, there's already the misogyny, right? There's the fat phobia, right? There's there's the patriarchy, there's all these things that are happening all at one time because these white men eugenicists want to control the sexual urges of non-men and people who are otherwise marginalized um, while also controlling what they eat and their body size. The idea is that, you know, if you control what you eat, if you control your, if you control your size, then you also control, um, you know, your sexual urges, you quell your sexual urges. Um, and I, I just think that what you're, what you're naming here just is so perfectly aligned with that. And so is that the kind of genealogy that we're experiencing now of diet culture in that it's, it's not so much to suppress sexual urges, but that diet culture helps us perhaps aspire to some sort of external standard that we could perhaps never reach. Is that what you're saying here? Like that standard is, is not set by us per se. And it's kind of a mutating yeah, standard, as it were, right? It's an ever-evolving standard, I believe, but it, but it's always one that is absolutely unreachable. Which is why I think that, especially in this era, and and this is not specific to um, the gays, but it's it's who I'm going to talk about in this moment because I think that it matters. Um, but I think that's why we're witnessing this this really like hyper vigilant moment right now within like. Black queer community in particular, but queer community at large, where folks are so like, you know, hyper fixated on their size and, and like their, their look, their aesthetic um, and fitting this, this, this mold in a way that I genuinely believe can be described as an eating disorder um, for a lot of people. Mm. But, it's, but it's a socially acceptable eating disorder because of the fact that there is a standard to be reached and if you are going to reach that standard, you have to abstain from something, right? You have to um, you have to control your body in very different ways, in very specific ways, in very particular ways, um, and that includes your urges, right? To to eat 
something that actually might be enjoyable to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is, that's the, the beauty with the capital B of, of diet culture is that it evolves continuously, but its purpose is always to create standards that are unattainable unless you are always already violent towards yourself and to others. Busy being black will return in just a moment. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. Today, a conversation with Deshaun Harrison, a black, fat, queer, and trans theorist and abolitionist whose new book, Belly of the Beast, is a beautiful and challenging offering that may just help us find our way back to each other. Now, your book is Belly of the Beast, Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness, or the politics, rather, of anti-fatness as anti-blackness. So we've got this diet culture that we're um, that we're all living through and experiencing in one way or another right. now. What is the anti-blackness that undergirds that? Where does that originate from? Where does anti-blackness originate from? The anti-blackness of anti-fatness. Anti-fatness in a particular way is like a framework by which the black fat subject is forced to be inhuman, right? Or to be an object or to be the beast. Um, and so it's, this global cosmic metaphysical structure um, that just determines how we live or how we're treated in life and how we're also treated in death. Um, And so when I'm naming that anti-fatness is anti-black or when I'm naming anti-fatness as anti-blackness, I'm saying that anti-fatness is anti-blackness, which is to say that it's the condition under which the black fat is held captive by the world. Um, And I understand anti-blackness to be the very structure that creates the world that we live in, that gives meaning to everything about the world that we live in. Um, And that means that anti-Blackness sort of functions as a paradigm of sorts um, that sort of creates this illogical production of Blackness, Black flesh, Black pain, Black trauma, Black suffering, um, and that creates Blackness as those things, right? That creates Blackness that that allows for Blackness to be suffering, that allows for Blackness to be trauma, that allows for Blackness to be trauma and, and pain. Um, and that is sort of created and, and, and sustained through the criminalization of our Blackness and our fatness, the penalization of our fatness, the objectification of our fatness, the marginalization of our fatness and our Blackness. And it's decided upon by society. And we, we continue to in, invest in it through this like, continued libidinal economy i'll say yeah and i think what i, f- one I hope of the that parts, was clear it was yeah I, I think one of the parts about belly of the beast that i found really invigorating <laughs> among many of course was i don't think if i'm honest that i had considered the black fat person irregardless of gender 
I, I don't think I had considered that it, there was a marriage of fatness and blackness together that kind of compounded mm -hmm. in the way that I understand how race and gender compound in the black woman's experience. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate that lens to be able to say, oh my gosh, of course, it's a very specific experience. Yeah. And I, I love that in the book, like you kind of set diet culture up and um, fat phobia and quote unquote obesity and then you kind of tie it to a history of anti-Blackness and a policing of Black people's bodies, which I think yes. opens up to really beautiful analysis around, um, you know, why the trans and, and non-binary or trans masculine, to be specific to the book, and non-binary subject continues to be that kind of um, next level if you will, mm -hmm. of kind of erasure and violence and oppression that I think that we all need to be like conscious of. I, I was, I found that I was like, I had just never, I hadn't considered that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that a lot of people haven't considered that. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's part of why I wrote the book because fat studies largely is overwhelmingly cis white women um, and their experiences and, you know, Black studies is overwhelmingly just specific to Black folks writ large, not necessarily like, you know, more specific experiences until you get into like this Black feminist thought. And that's very particular to Black women and, and critiques of um, Black, you know, patriarchy and, and, and manhood, but never anything that's, that's necessarily specific to these identities that I'm talking about and exploring in the book. And so for me, it was very important to, yeah, to just become a lot more clear in, in this connection between these disciplines um, about these very specific experiences that are often overlooked by everyone. Yeah, I mean, you write um, elsewhere, not, in the, um, not necessarily in the book, um, just find my notes. Um, you know, you kind of make a distinction between the ways that Black trans women have become, quote, hypervisibilized, um, and that people have kind of taken up this mantle of performative advocacy, these are your words, and activism to prove their commitment to trans liberation. However, mm -hmm. because it is but a performance, trans women are forced to experience heightened scrutiny, visibilized rising death tolls, and being made into a spectacle. And while their plight becomes more visible, sislings, as you call us, thank you, <laughs> find more ways to invisibilize non-binary non trans people. When you exist in a fat and black body, that violence becomes worse. So people grow comfortable with being transphobic towards non-binary people because the violence transgressed against our bodies has not yet been directly translated to death. Yeah. Thus, they, performative advocates, cannot yet build social, political, and or economic capital off of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> I writing that, that and piece. I was like, damn. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, it's, that's to this day, one of my favorite pieces that I've ever written. Um, and there's a lot to explore there. But um, yes, there's something very particular about the ways that cis sexism and, and cis heteronormativity writ large sort of requires that our experiences be translated directly to death if there is any sort of performative care or advocacy or, or offered resources. Um, and I think that what that does is it pushes trans folks as, as a whole into 
a hyper-visibilized experience that then just makes life even less safe for us to live while also leaving us that much more vulnerable. Um, yeah, and, like, there's like a, oh, yeah. there's, sorry to interrupt, there's almost like a That's mythic, um, like a mythic nature to Black trans women's lives because it's so hyper-visibilized, because it's so, it's almost abstract, right? Because right. most people don't know a Black trans person who's been murdered, right? Right. And so I think there's like this kind of detached, as you say, this hyper-visibilized, it almost becomes mythic. But in that kind of mythicness, if you will, I think you're saying that we're missing everyone who, including the Black trans women, everyone also who experiences that violence of the trans experience. Yeah, it is to say that in in that sort of exactly, I love that how you just explained that in that sort of mythic understanding of of black transness and black trans womanhood, black trans women are having to live with no resources still, with no access still, with no care still, with no no gentleness still, right? And then everyone else who is under this trans experience, but it's not living as a as a black trans woman in particular is also experiencing these exact these exact same things but to the cis folks who are offering this sort of performative advocacy that doesn't even begin to translate or matter because there's nothing that they can there's no form of death that they can connect that to so there's no need to sort of mythicize our experience um and and that is just the continued violence of cis heteronormativity yeah, and that your life, I think what you're saying in, in the book and elsewhere, doesn't have the same purchase in life or death Precisely. as um, other more visible Black bodies. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. And not, we're, obviously, we're not saying that in a competitive way, but just to right, use it, right, right, right. <laughs> in a capitalist society, to use a metaphor. Uh, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't have the same purchase. Yeah. And, and, that, and that the fact that a a life has to have purchase or capital, right, value to be shown up for is precisely the issue in the first place. Yes. I made a note of this actually in my notes. Um, I have an issue with the fact that we talk about, like, this might be a bit of a leap, so do let me know if I, <laughs> if I, should, if I should rein it in, but this conversation about Black trans bodies and Black non, non-binary people and bodies has and black fat bodies sorry has has made me think about the ways that black people more broadly um our value is still measured if we think about the business case for inclusion and diversity it drives me crazy that people are talking about diversity and inclusion in dollars and cents and pounds and pence mm -hmm. like it feels very slave block and i think mm -hmm. that perhaps points to this kind of purchase economy or capitalism maybe is a better way to say it where our lives have to be a commodity in order and have to be something that's lost to accrue its value right absolutely i think that you just wrapped up the the whole afro pessimist argument and oh really and and, and once <laughs> it's, it's, it's 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 this you know this level of fugitivity um that that one must exist as if they are black right like we to be black is to live as a fugitive um it is to be without a home and to always be up for purchase right it's it's to it's to i think that that is that understanding is is so important because that is the base for understanding the difference between what makes folks 
marginalized versus what makes someone a slave, right? Like the difference between white women being created as an underclass, right, to men versus black folks or the slave being subject and not having a class at all. That understanding is is what helps to create this sort of that whole idea. And I think that what you're what you're getting at here is that we are continue we're we're living a continuous life as slaves through through anti-blackness, through whiteness. Um, and that because that's true, our bodies and our being has to be commodified in a very particular way in order to sustain the world because the subjugation of our bodies and our being is what helps to sustain the world that we live in. Right. It's what helps to sustain capitalist desires, what helps to sustain capital in general. And what is what I believe Frank Wilderson and Jarrett Sexton are talking about with libidino economy, what helps to sustain the libidino economy. So I love, I love when you, when you name this because yes, Black folks as a whole are, are experiencing what it means to only ever be a commodity, mm-hmm. what it means to only ever be a subject, right? Um, and an object simultaneously. And I, I believe that there is something very important about that analysis because what it should do is lead us to a deeper understanding of just how much we have to fuck shit up <laughs> to, to ever get any sort of freedom at all. Because if, if there is freedom to get, because DEI is not going to get us there, right? That, that continues. That? It requires you. <laughs> it requires you to still invest in this commodification of your own body. And, it, and you're right. right. I believe that it absolutely is um, just another form of, of slave auctioning. Um, and, and slave capturing too. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of fucking shit up, <laughs> I want to go somewhere with you and I hope you'll, I hope you don't mind. Let's do it. Um, and I have to admit to being a little wary of broaching this particular subject, but it feels important here and I feel it helps us kind of talk, talk shit out so we can fuck shit up. Yeah. Um, so as I've said, I found the book challenging and not because mm. I don't agree with any of the ideas or I don't understand them, but because of the implications for me mm. and uh, the truth about what you write. And there are two points I'd like to draw you out on. Okay. Um, the first is uh, the internal policing that uh, anti-fatness uh, requires and necessitates, encourages. I've been working with a personal trainer over the past 18 months to achieve whatever attainable goal I've set myself. Mm. And, you know, I'm very aware that the goal is unattainable. unattainable. I'm very self-aware. I know that what I'm trying to achieve is kind of probably unhealthy. Um, But what stood out to me also, I think I remember Instagramming you about this actually, because I was so upset. But like what what really stood out for me in this conversation with my personal trainer um, while I was reading uh, belly of the beast was uh, this t- in order to reach this very unattainable goal he said you're going to have to increase the amount of calories you're eating and I had a physiological response to mm-hmm. what he said like I I was upset right mm-hmm. and I couldn't quite figure out um, why I was so upset with that why it made me uh, so nervous um, 
and I even now thinking about it, I feel a sense of dread, right? That I'll have to increase my calorie count. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to name that, particularly in this conversation about anti-fatness, because do I have it right that if I'm policing myself internally like this, that I must be doing it to other people? Absolutely. Right. I don't think that there, I don't think that there is a way, you know, I love this question and I love the 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 introspection happening here. A lot of people will, I always hear, they're like, you know, well, no, just because I don't like my body or just because I don't, I do this to my body doesn't mean that I'm doing that to other people or that I'm judging other people. But that completely discounts and ignores the way that socialization works, right? Part of what this means is that if we're being socialized in in an anti-fat world, that built into our, our own subconscious is this need to judge, critique, um, control, police other people if we have not sort of undone or, or unlearned that for ourselves, if we're not part of, we're not actively on that journey. Yeah, and how do you know what not to be if you're not judging and looking at someone else? Exactly, precisely, <laughs> exactly, exactly that. So, so yeah, I, I I love that that's happening because I think a lot of people like to believe that you know, you know, they make a, a thread here and there, or they they post a, a a picture with their fat friend or something that that that's enough that it means that they're quote unquote doing the work, whatever that means. But the reality is that there is so much depth to this that absolutely requires a lot more thought than I think what a lot of people give to to this conversation yeah (laughs) that's part of what was so upsetting was one I don't think that you offer a solution for those of us who meet capital D desire which I found challenging in itself I was like okay well Mm -hmm. now what do I do um and I think (laughs) that that uncertainty that um unknowing is intentional right because we have to figure this out together Mm -hmm. um and, and particularly those of us who have the kind of quote unquote capital if you will or who have accrued it or who are awarded it or who's upon whom it's conferred right um like we have like the the work to do together which leads me to my second point that i hope this isn't too kind of like esoteric but or too woo woo <laughs> but you know i've been and this is personal to me and you so i've been um watching your stories, reading your content, looking at the image that you put out, thinking about my own internalized anti-fatness, my own relationship to my body and problematic relationship with calories. And it occurred to me that perhaps what's also happening, what also, what anti-fatness also does is it prevents an intimacy between you and I Mm. that could change the world. I absolutely believe that that's true. I think that that's true for a lot of a lot of experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I took a pause there because I'm like, is that true? And I'm like, yeah, a lot of a lot of people could benefit from that con- that sort of continued unlearning um, of their own anti-fat bias, right? And 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 I think that sometimes when when I say this, the pushback that I get from people is as if it's like something that's specific only to them. But Mm. in my mind, when I say this, I'm like, this is something that all of us benefit from, all of us have to deal with, myself included, right? Like 
and I think that sometimes we take these sort of critiques, um, if if you want to call it that, even very personally. And no, I don't think so at all. I, I love that the way that you just named that is that yes, there's a certain level of intimacy that is absolutely quelled or squashed or or impossible to meet when there's an unwillingness or or a sort of hardship that that comes with trying to undo that anti-fatness or, or that anti-fat mm-hmm. bias yeah and, and that the prevention of that intimacy right that mm-hmm. that there is a chance a very good chance that you and I might never cross paths and not because we don't live in the same country and not because we don't have the same interests but because you look like you look and I look like I look precisely and that that prevention of that intimacy of the potential impossibility that is engendered, sorry for lack of a better word, um, between you and I, um, feels to me to be special and magical, right? To talk to you know to reference the community building that you spoke about in Atlanta, that that potential impossibility feels very important to me. Something that we could we could do more of together, but outside of you and me, of course. I mean, but as a community. Yeah, it's it's very important, um, and not just outside of you and me. I think you and me is a very good, is a very good place to start. Place but to start, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I think that there is like um, for me, I've been in in spaces with people who folks who look like me and folks who look nothing like me, right? Who who do benefit from this desire capital that we're speaking about, um, and. In both spaces, a lot of times there's a lot to undo. There's a lot to unlearn. Mm. There's a lot to break down, because if we're honest, you know, an analysis on on anti-fatness is it's very rare because fat studies in general is a very new discipline. It's like no older than twenty years old, right? It's it's two decades old, so it's very new. Um, for me, it's about determining when it feels worth it to do that level of 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 work and that for me is determined entirely by the other individual or individuals and the level of work that they're willing to put in right um and also work that that that's done on their own it doesn't make me you know their scapegoat or or their teacher right that that then places me into this this other category where i'm just now just the person who is supposed to teach this person every single thing um, and and get nothing like and I don't benefit from that type of relationship there's no community building there there's no intimacy there it's just a a a laborious process Um, and so I think that there but I've been in spaces where that has where that has happened and I do find it to be very magical very very beautiful very important because there's a lot there to be learned and a lot there to be developed, a lot there to be explored. Um, and when you're able to, you know, continuously break past these barriers, um, these walls that that so many of us have built up because we've been socialized to, um, there's just, there's a lot, there's a whole new realm of possibility. I was um, reading your bio and, mm. um, your bio says you are a black, fat, queer, trans theorist, and abolitionist. So I said fat in my head. And then I thought, oh, wait, am I allowed to say that? So just briefly, Kim, like, what does it say? That... So let me ask a very obvious question. I can describe you as fat and or not. 
Or should I? Yes. Right. Yeah. Because if I don't describe you as fat, it suggests that I think there's some sort of shame in being fat. Right. And I don't think <laughs> right. there is. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's just like, it's to me, it's, it's, it's very similar to, you know, white folks who refuse to say the word black, like black, they'll be right. like, okay, fine. you know, African-American or people of color or whatever. And it's like, babes, I'm black. You could just say black. Okay, fine. I <laughs> it's similar to, to that. But what I will also say though, and I, and I love that you're asking this because black is, is, is a much more common term than fat is right. In, in terms of like identity. And so what I will also say is that, yes, there's a lot of pain associated with that word and the reclamation of it is also very new. Mm -hmm. So what I tell people to sort of err on the side of caution is when describing a group of people, when talking about us as an identity of folks, a marginalized group of people, use fat, right? We're talking about an individual who you don't know is, you know, part of the sort of like reclamation of this word mm. it's best to ask them what they want to be referred to as right you know there's a lot of a lot of language that people use and most of it i am not fond of but i also give other fat folks grace and room to mm. determine that for themselves because i know it's a journey for all of us so yeah I, I i think that what i always tell people is that when talking about us as a as a whole use the word fat when talking about me please use the word fat. I don't want to hear thick. I don't want to hear big. I don't want to hear larger. I don't want to hear none of that. Call me fat. Yeah. Um, but when talking about folks who, you know, are not necessarily in that place, it's always best to ask or best, it's best to assume really that, um, that if you know that they're not in that place, that you probably shouldn't, shouldn't go with that. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm glad I'm asked. Thank you for that. Yeah. For that clarity. Um, I'm going to keep going with the woo-woo, actually. Um, <laughs> Please do. I'm a huge fan of Kevin Kwashi and his work exploring our interior lives. I sometimes think, feel like it's a bit at odds with Afro-pessimism mm -hmm. um, because I sometimes feel like Afro-pessimism doesn't offer us a, a great deal of hope. It's more mm -hmm. of like the, it's more like the, the terrain and we're supposed to kind of build, you know, houses of hope on top of it. Yeah. Um, but I do want to engage you in a, a bit of like interiority and I would love to know, like when you close your eyes, when you sit in your body, when you connect to the ancestors and when you think about the future, what does that future look like for you? Hmm. So I struggle with future right? Um, I struggle with what that looks like, what that means. But what I, what I know for sure um, is that if there, if there is a future to, to experience, it is one wherein I am, none of us are, described by any of these identities right, where there is no, no Black, white identity, there is no queer, trans, gay, straight, any of that, right, there's, there's no fat, there's, there's, there's none of these, you know, identities that we have had to use to describe ourselves because of colonialism, because of anti-Blackness, because of capitalism. And so if there is, if there is a beyond, like I talk about in chapter seven of the book, if there is a beyond to experience it's one where none of that is part of 
that experience, right? Where I get to show up as my full self, just being my full self. And, and that, you know, the type of relationships that I want to build are not things that are displaced or made impossible or, or, or hard to, to obtain because of how I look or be how, because of how they look or because of what we experience or don't experience, right? Like all of these experiences don't exist. That's, that's the beyond that I want to experience if there is one to experience. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes that feels like an impossibility to me, but a lot of times that feels like it's more than possible. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely something that I want to experience. And I know that at the very least, it is something that to an extent, a very small extent, of course, because we all navigate the same world and therefore we're all experiencing anti-Blackness, capitalism, colonialism all the time. But to a small, to a small extent, I've, I've experienced a piece of that in my own community um, and in that community building. And I want to experience that on a large scale, right? So that's what I will say that that looks like for me right now <laughs> i appreciate you going there as well as an Afro- afro-pessimist <laughs> yes it was yeah. it's difficult but i but i took it there <laughs> yeah i mean you say in the book um quote abolition cannot be the end it must only be the beginning yeah exactly yeah. i think that we talk about abolition as if it is an end goal um and for me it absolutely is not um and sometimes for people that's a little bit confusing but what i try to equate it to is if you think about any building right you can go and destroy a building right now if you think about january 6th for example january 6th um the the insurrectionist at the capitol in the u.s they went in and destroyed that building but the u.s is still standing right of course the u.s government was never destroyed because the u.s government is not just a structure it's not just a building it's not just an edifice it is also an idea it's a it's an ideology it's a it's a history it's a matter and a making (laughs) if i'm using zakia mind jackson's words Mm. um (laughs) and so because of that abolition cannot be the end goal because when we destroy these structures there are still the ideas that linger that help to create those and who stops someone from rebuilding those structures if the ideas themselves are not destroyed too which means that there's something about the metaphysics of anti-blackness that has to also be destroyed and i don't know that that's a possibility i don't know that that's something that 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 we do but I know that that is, that must be the answer, right? If there is going to ever be a beyond that we get to experience that looks like what I just described. And I, God knows, I hope it, that there is. And that requires imagination, right? It does, <laughs> it does. Um, and you know, I think, that, and this is why I, I, I say that I am not an Afro-pessimist, but I think, I, I think with Afro-pessimism and I use a lot of Afro-pessimist thought in my own work, but I think that a lot of a lot of my my peers and a lot of Afro pessimists will be like, you know, imagination is 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 not a good thing, and and you know that it it's it sort of builds this this sort of hope for for something that 
moves us away from an analysis structured in or 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 rooted in understanding anti-blackness as a global as a metaphysical as a cosmic phenomenon and you know i think that that's somewhat fair but for me i think that imagination it doesn't lead me to afrofuturism it doesn't lead me to um to moving away from my understanding of anti-blackness it moves me actually closer to that understanding because i understand that so much of what we could imagine has been stripped from us because of the existence of whiteness and anti-blackness um and so yeah i i i value imagination and what it and all that it could be and the 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 newness that it can create when we decide to think beyond what we know deshaun thank you so much for being here and for being such a generous conversation partner um i'm such a I admire you so much. And I hope that this is just the beginning of many more conversations and intimacies and moments yes. for us to, you know, imagine the beyond together. Thank you for being yes. here. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very grateful to be here. I absolutely hope that this is just the first of many on and off the air. Um, and I, you know, I'm just um, grateful for the work that you continue to do. Deshaun Harrison is a Black, fat, queer, and trans theorist and abolitionist in Atlanta, Georgia. Deshaun is the author of Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness, and is a public speaker who often gives talks and leads workshops on blackness, queerness, gender, fatness, disabilities, and their intersections. Deshaun currently serves as the editor-at-large for Scalawag Magazine and is the co-host of the podcast Unsolicited, Fatties Talk Back. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, podcast listener. 
Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.